Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with William Priggy about his recent book, Bear Slayers, The Rise and Fall of the Latvian National Communists, published by Peter Lass. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with William Priggy about his recent book, Bear Slayers, The Rise and Fall of the Latvian National Communists, published by Peter Lang. And I was looking forward to reading this book, uh, in part because I, too, work on the Soviet Baltics, and I'm always happy to read about um, uh, that part of the Soviet Union. And I think it was very interesting, not only in what I learned about the Latvian National Communists, but also about uh, the Soviet um, politics at the time. So welcome, William, uh, to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me. And I am uh, going to uh, go through a series of questions, of course, about this book. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in Latvia and in Soviet politics? Sure. Uh, It actually started with Soviet politics first. Um, When I began school back in 1989, there still was a Soviet Union. And so it was a very interesting topic at the time. And then sure enough, two years later, it collapsed. Nobody cared about the Soviet Union, and there I was. But it actually worked out to be pretty fortuitous in that uh, that later on would give me access to archival material that I wouldn't have had had there been a Soviet Union. And so I was good in that way. Um, I came to Latvia, though, a little bit later. Um, I guess one of the things that interests me about the past is either why something really works or why something doesn't work. So I was kind of torn between English history versus uh, Russian or Soviet history, and I sort of decided to go with why things don't work. Um, but uh, but I was working then on my master's degree, and uh, and I had a very sort of engaging professor. Who was uh, who was Latvian by birth came to the United States as a uh, emigre, and he uh, and he really uh, sucked me in. And um, he had a trip that he always led to uh, Eastern Europe. And out of the English trips, the German trips, the Italian trips. The Eastern Europe trip was always the one that uh, struggled the most. And so he made sure that I went on that. He said, you could do Britain anytime, but when will you get a chance to do Eastern Europe? And at that point, it was only a few years after the uh, uh, the Soviet Union had collapsed. So I really got to see it in its sort of pristine uh, post-totalitarian form. Um, but he's very well connected. Uh, he's uh, what I sort of characterizes maybe a Latvian uh, activist. 
Uh, and so when we would travel with him, uh, we met any number of fascinating, interesting, uh, relevant people that, you know, would be routinely on the news, uh, former leaders, dissidents, uh, you name it. We really got to meet them all. Presidents, heads of state. Uh, he got us in to see everyone. But that's really where I met Bear Claws, Edward Bear Claws, then for the first time was way back in about 1992 or 94. Um, and, uh, and his was a uh, fascinating story to me. Um, and I only really knew the, the, the rough outlines of it. I didn't know the details of it. But um, I sort of put it on the shelf taught community college for a few years, decided to go back for my PhD. Uh, and when it came time for uh, my dissertation, um, I was thinking of a topic and I sort of kept returning to, to Latvia. And this professor, he and I, um, we were very good colleagues, I would say, all the way up to, you know, the present time. Um, and so he had a very special bond, I think. Uh, and so he was so proud that I would go on to do this research and wanted to help me with every way possible with contacts and the, the rest. And so I began to do my, uh, my research. Um, but, you know, something that you should know about uh, this person, and I think many people like him, is that history is something that's very emotional, and uh, maybe in the United States, we see it as something in the past. But I think for a lot of people, history is more about the present. Something else that I learned as well, too, is that history is not always just sort of an unbiased quest for the truth. But instead, and anybody that studies family genealogy will understand this, it's more about maybe how a people want to be remembered. And so with this... Sometimes you've got to be just a little bit careful, but at the same time, one has an obligation, I think, to go where it is that the facts lead you. And oftentimes I would find myself coming across information that I knew might be controversial with the, uh, with the, the larger community. And so I was actually something of a uh, reluctant publisher because I'm not a bomb thrower by my nature. Uh, I just wanted to do my research. And in my dissertation, I, uh, I put out my findings, but I didn't really want to disseminate it too much. So I would go to these various conferences, Baltic conferences, sort of say my controversial statements to an audience of five and then go about my way. Um, but at some point this was picked up on and the editor at the journal of Baltic studies contacted me and he wanted, uh, he wanted me to publish what, uh, he had heard about at one of these conferences. So I reluctantly did it, uh, because I knew it was borderline controversial, um, nothing like industrialization or russification, but I knew that, you know, it could ruffle some feathers Submitted it, forgot about it, got a job up here at South Dakota, and didn't even really quite realize that the publication was coming out. And then all of a sudden, all these little emails started to pop up. Some were sort of what you might call fan mail, some was what you might call hate mail. <laughs> and, uh, 
And it was just about the time that I was getting ready to, um, it was after actually I, I submitted my final draft for publication on Bear Slayers. And you'll notice, um, Amanda, in the acknowledgments that uh, I don't list the person that had such an influence on my path. Um, and I was really torn about that uh, because this person had uh, given me such direction that how is it that I could acknowledge this person? But I also remember sort of an incident from a, uh, a dinner where he was recounting how when he was a little boy sort of fleeing Latvia, that his last memory of Latvia was picking up this little stone and putting it in his pocket. And his tears would just well up in his eyes as he just recounted this guilt that he would have over even removing a single stone from sort of his homeland. And I thought... This book might betray a lot of what his beliefs and sacred truths are, and and it's going to put his name out there as being associated with mine, and what will that do to his reputation with his colleagues? And so I contacted the editor, and I said, I've got to redo this acknowledgement, I, and, and I stripped his name from it. Um, it is one of the hardest decisions that I made, but... Um, it just shows you how uh, how sort of alive this history really is, even to this day. Mm-hmm. So, really speaks to the politics of memory and the politics of history in a in an interesting way, and and not necessarily the impact of how you approached your work, but also then how you have to manage these various relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So very interesting, and I uh, can appreciate uh, that as well, working um, on Soviet Lithuania. Um, But let's go ahead and uh, look specifically at Latvia. And before we talk about the time period that your book covers, can you give us just a brief overview? Uh, Not everyone will be aware of the history of Latvia and how it ended up as part of the Soviet Union. Yeah, let me just uh, kind of um, lay the groundwork a little bit. So it's uh, in the westernmost part of the uh, the former Soviet Union, um, probably the wealthiest area, the Baltics are, of, of that uh, region, um, had been occupied since the time of Peter the Great. Uh, serfdom was eradicated in parts of uh, Latvia before other areas of Russia, Uh, generally more industrialized, urbanized, uh, advanced, even within the Baltics itself. Um, And if we could think about the people, Latvia is not just the Latvians. Maybe a better way to understand it is Latvia, for most of its history, were the peasants. And the Germans then were the, uh, the, 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 the city dwellers. And then maybe later on, the Russians are there, uh, perhaps in uh, more of an administrative uh, function. Uh, and really not to the 19th century, do you begin to see sort of Latvians coming in from the countryside as uh, uh, sort of a proletariat class uh, and, and Russian numbers uh, really growing in, in any size. And in a sense, if there was a um, uh, 
common enemy for the the Latvians, it might have been the Germans for most of its history, being the baron class, the landowning class, and the uh, sort of the factory owner against the factory worker. Uh, and if, even if you look at the revolutions of 1905, much of that was directed at the Germans rather than the Russians. And the Russians, in some ways, were seen as a healthy counterbalance to the uh, to the German influence. But um, World War One, I, I think, almost as much as World War Two, was a uh, turning point for for Latvia. Um, Demographically, it was catastrophic. Uh, it had a population of over two and a half million. It would take until the 1960s to get back to even over two million people within Latvia. Um, it left a uh, huge vacuum as the Russian Empire uh, collapsed. Uh, it was occupied by German Free Corps soldiers, um, uh, communists, uh, uh, Latvian nationalists. Ultimately, it's going to be the Latvian nationalists who prevail after a brief stint of a uh, communist Latvia. Um, and then we sort of enter what we might call the the golden age of Latvian history, that interwar period, because that's really the time, first time uh, that it has uh, a truly independent state. Um and and that is is going to have huge ramifications on on the history as we're going to see it later on, um, but um, but uh, the um, the uh, uh, the the leadership uh, eventually becomes more authoritarian. Communism is uh, largely eradicated uh, to maybe just a few hundred. They were driven underground. Uh, and so, uh, and so, then eventually, then the, uh, the the Soviet Union is going to come to Latvia at the time of the the, the secret protocols of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And sometimes in the United States, we don't we don't fully appreciate what 1939-1940 means in European history. We hear about the Blitzkrieg into Poland, and we forget that there's a whole second sort of event happening simultaneously coming in from the uh, from the Soviet side. Uh, and with that, you have the annexation of, of eastern Poland, the Baltic states, uh, the winter war with Poland. And so at that point, we begin a, uh, a Soviet occupation for about a year and a half, two years of the, the Baltic states by the Soviet Union. Uh, and then the Germans are going to return with the breaking of the uh, the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Um, and as one of my host mothers recalls, because she was alive at the uh, the time of the Second World War, her brothers were older, uh, and so she just recalls how uh, when the Russians came, what they would do is they would sweep through the high schools looking for um, boys, I guess, of fighting age, and draft them into the army, and then the Germans came, uh, and they would do the same thing, come through the high school, sweep them, and, and, and press anybody that was of fighting age into service. And so she had uh, one brother fighting on the German side and another brother fighting on the Russian side. The German side, that brother 
uh, fell into the hands of the British and lived out his days in England and sort of would write letters to my host mother. But it sort of shows you how it was uh, so um, uh, brother against brother, truly. Um, but then with, uh, with uh, the uh, defeat of the Nazis, many, uh, many Latvians chose to flee. Uh, and a lot of this is sort of a ethnic war versus a class war. And you would get really atrocities on both sides. So when the Soviets came, they would commit uh, atrocities against uh, people that were bourgeoisie, uh, wealthy peasants. Uh, uh, tens of thousands died within Latvia during the, uh, the first occupation. Uh, and so a lot of Latvians were glad to see the, uh, the, the Nazis come because, frankly, the French and the British were unreliable and uh, you really think first and foremost about your own situation rather than democratic ideals. Uh, and I have another host mother uh, who was sort of, of that bourgeois class, and she remembers this time as well. And she's one of these, along with my, my, my professor, who sort of fled with the Nazis back to, uh, to, to Germany, hoping to get to maybe the, uh, the Allied side. And when the Soviets returned in 1944 and 45, uh, a, a whole new wave of atrocities uh, began anew. Um, and this would continue all the way into the early 1950s, actually. So it doesn't end on May 9th, all neat and tidy 1945, like we like to imagine it. And so... Um, Maybe just let me uh, say one last thing. Uh, um, so then you have these national communists, and I'm, I'll, we'll talk more about them later on. But they are this clique within Latvia, and they sort of ascend to power in the 1950s. And so much of my own work then is going to deal with their purge in 1959, um, ostensibly at the hands of, of Khrushchev. And that's that's going to be a scenario that I come back and revisit in my uh, in my book. So great. Well, and so now you know the Soviet Union has uh, annexed um, the Latvia, and it's uh, designated as a, a Soviet Socialist Republic. And the Soviet authorities are putting communists in, in leadership positions and making the Latvian Communist Party. Uh, the political force in this new Soviet Republic. Uh, and you po point out that there were different kinds of communists in, in Latvia. And, and three of the types that you describe are the um, Latvian nationalists, who you've mentioned, of course, are the focus of the book, but also uh, Russophiles and internationalist Marxists. So tell us about these different kinds of communists and their relationship to each other. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I really... I think found in my research is that our tendency in history is to look at things very simplistically. Um, and, and we find as we look at this more closely that there's any number of little nuances that we need to be aware of um, that don't sort of lend themselves to uh, easy retelling. Um, but one is trying to get a handle on who these various shades of, of communists were. And they were all communists. Um, but the first group, uh, the Russophiles, uh, we might imagine them as ultra-patriots. 
And what I think really distinguishes them is that they were very brash. Uh, they would be very uh, nationalistic, actually, in a pro-Russian way, uh, seeing that as, as sort of the, 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 the best culture and that everything else was provincial and backwards and unworthy. Um, and I'll throw in a few stereotypes as well, too, to sort of give the, uh, the flavor of them. So most uh, of the second secretaries would be these uh, Russophiles, uh, and their job was to sort of be in the, uh, in the Republic, monitoring things on behalf of, of Moscow, keeping an eye on things. Um, frequently, these Russophiles would be uh, from the military, so a lot of this is left over from the Second World War and the troops and the officers that are, are left over. And that, uh, that we might say that they're also very transient. And you find this with the second secretaries as well. They, they would rarely stay more than uh, three or four years. So they didn't know about the Republic. They didn't care about it. They didn't think much of it. Uh, and they would be off to another assignment. And, and same with the the military. They're constantly being moved from republic to republic. Um, then to throw in some of the stereotypes, uh, that they weren't terribly well educated uh, and that they were somewhat uh, lazy. <laughs> and so... Uh, so you'll see these stereotypes come up time and again in, in, this, uh, in this discussion. But so to contrast that then, we, we would imagine that all non-Latvians are sort of of the same stripe. But these Marxist internationalists, and the best example of this would be Arvids Pelsha and, and perhaps his patron in Moscow, Mikhail Suslov. Uh, is that they're a little bit more introspective, I would say, uh, more educated. Um, uh, here's a nice stereotype, crusty. They're kind of, when we think of old guard, they are the crotchetiest of the old guard. Um, but they like things, um, they're, they're, they're very rigid ideologues, I would say. Uh, and they saw danger in nationalism in perhaps all of its different forms, including at times with uh, Russian nationalism. So I don't know that they would be any more in favor of that than, than Latvian nationalism. And one of the big differences that you might see between a uh, Mikhail Suslov, who heads up uh, Egeprop, comes after uh, uh, Andrei Zhdanov, who was in charge of ideology uh, during and just after the Second World War, is that Zhdanov would refer to the, uh, the Russian people, whereas uh, Suslov would refer to them as the Soviet people. So just in that little phrase itself, you get a, you get a sense of the, uh, the nuance. Um, but at the end of the day, if you push uh, Pelsha far enough, He's going to say that clearly Russia is the more advanced society, civilization, culture. Uh, if you ask, how are we going to communicate with everyone in the Soviet Union? You have to have a lingua franca. The natural language should be Russian because it's, it's spoken by the most people. Uh, and so it's very easy to see how these things might, uh, might, might be confused. Um, 
but then finally you have the uh, the, the national communists, and so they're they're communists too. Um, but how they see it is they are sort of the Soviet Union communism with the human face types. That if you want to make this um, palatable to the locals, you have to respect and embrace their uh, their national culture. And that the way that you're truly going to get uh, not just sort of annex and, 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 and take, but absorb into the Soviet Union and make this thing whole is that you have to give them a reason to do that. You, it, it has to come from the bottom up. Uh, and so, in a sense, they, they can be very democratic as well. And they want this to be popular with the people. They want it to be a, a ground-up movement. Um, and if we look at the stereotypes of the Latvian national communists, um, we might see that, um, though this wouldn't be true of Bear Claws, they tend to be uh, fairly well educated. Uh, if for no other reason, then the education levels are higher in Latvia than they are in the rest of the Soviet Union. Uh, but they are also younger, uh, and they were also dynamic. And so these are all sort of hallmarks of them. But there's a fine line between national communism and outright nationalism. And sometimes when you take these things to its logical conclusion, you can begin to, to run into trouble. And we'll see this, of course, with Bear Claws as well. Mm-hmm. So. Well, let's talk about Bear Claws now. You've already referred to him as um, the, the, the person who really drew your interest and who you wanted to learn more about. So uh, tell us uh, about him and, and how he came to power um, in Soviet Latvia. The thing about Bear Claws, Edward Bear Claws, is... He is a passionate man. <laughs> I had the opportunity. I had the opportunity to meet him back uh, about 15 years ago. Here's a picture of uh, he and I, um, and he just throws himself 100% into whatever it is that he does. Uh, and and he is just a dynamo. He was a dynamo at 93 years old. Uh, just a true force of nature. Um, but one of the things that always touched me about him, uh, back in the 1930s when he was growing up and he was, he was, he just came from a very impoverished area, uh, cool digger in, in, uh, Latvia. So he was desperately poor growing up. Uh, he would hear, um, uh, the radio broadcast coming in from the Soviet Union, uh, and and he just recalled how his eyes would just swell up with tears as he would hear about this sort of utopian land just across the border and how he wanted this so desperately for uh, Latvia. And so he just threw himself into his work. Uh, eventually, he was uh, spent time in prison under uh, the Ulmanist regime. Um and, uh, and then the Soviets arrived. Now, something that, that people should really know, and I don't know that it's fully appreciated, is how rare of a find somebody like Edwards Bear Claws was to the arriving Soviet power. And in this, I think, uh, 
gives us a clue and an answer to many future questions that we have as to why things are as they are. But, I mean, you could probably one or 200 uh, indigenous Latvian communists at the time of, of the Soviet arrival, and that was it. And you have to then, if, if you understand it from the Soviet side, at least give the uh, facade or the illusion of some type of local legitimacy. Uh, and so these people were exceedingly rare, uh, and, and you couldn't waste a single one of these people. And so, in a sense, uh, he, he kept complaining in his memoirs and in his interviews how sort of behind his back, he would say, uh, they kept pushing him higher despite the fact that he didn't necessarily want to go higher. And um, part of that account, I question, uh, but part of me also understands why that would be, because when there's only 200, uh, you have to make full use of all of those people there. Um, and so uh, so the, the national communists uh, were really born, I would say, in the Second World War. This clique really began uh, in the Red Army, and the Latvians tended to be in the same uh, division. Um, and they came to know each other during the, uh, the Second World War. And, um, and so Bear Claus was the oldest. Uh, he was the... Um, he was sort of the driving force, I would say, behind all of this. And then I would say uh, there's another person, Villas Krumich, who will come up in her story later on. Uh, he's younger. Uh, he's a little bit more moderate, less radical. Um, and he would actually take um, higher positions than Bear Claws would uh, as we go forward. However... Um, Bear Claws was always the driving force behind uh, everything that happened during the uh, the 1950s, and so um, and so then from the 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 Red Army after the war, uh, this clique really sort of consolidated in the Komsomol. So. And you say that Bear Claws just as he's a national communist, so he's really thinking about Latvia, um, but he also saw. Uh, collaboration is the only way to secure greater rights for Latvia within the Soviet Union. So how did he uh, think of collaboration? Because that's often used as a, you know, a negative term. Uh, yeah. Someone was a collaborator, but this, he seems to see this kind of collaboration as something positive. What, what was that like? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and one thing that maybe we should be careful of is that at the end of the day, I'm not sure we know what Bear Claws thinks. I sometimes I don't know if Bear Claws knows what Bear Claws thinks. And so, but um, if you think about the events that he went through and the the transformation that happened, um, this poor man must have been just riddled with guilt. Um, because he doesn't quite know what his role has been in what's unfolded. Um, and he would make quite a point of this in his uh, autobiography. That you mean in terms of the, um, the deportations and the, uh, the destruction that was carried out in, in Latvia with the Soviet no occupation? No, more, more that he was a reluctant communist. Oh, okay. And 
it, so he started out, and he will say this for sure, that he was a true believer. Uh, but then, depending on when you catch him, uh, that uh, when he begins to lose his faith, uh, happens any time from uh, the, the moment the Soviets arrived all the way through the uh, 1950s or so. Uh, and part of this, we, we don't know, is that him talking to a 1990s audience, trying to justify what had now clearly been an occupation, an illegal and forcible occupation, or is that truly when he sort of lost his faith? Uh, and, and we can't know. But he gave some really sort of interesting glimpses into that. Um, he talks about when uh, when the Soviets first came, how he would, uh, they, they, they took him out to Moscow. And he would give this speech in Moscow in front of all these important delegates. And the poor guy didn't know much Russian, just what he had picked up from, uh, from the prisons. Uh, and so he's sort of stammering through this speech half in Russian, poor Russian, half in Latvian. Audience has no idea what it is that he's saying, but they would just sort of erupt in applause anyways. And he thought, hmm, that's strange. <laughs> but the other thing was, he just remembered on that train trip into Moscow, just the stark poverty that he encountered when he looked out the train window and how that shocked him. And everybody sort of looked at everybody else, all these Latvians going out to Moscow, almost with this thought that what have we just done? And what did we get ourselves into? This isn't the promised land that I remember on the radio. This is something totally different. But then he really complains about how the experience in the Red Army was such an awful experience. And he really came to despise it. And then by the time you get to the late 1940s, they put him at head of the Komsomol, which is sort of the, um, not the young pioneers, but the next stage up, but a very important recruitment tool if you want to get Latvians into the Communist Party. The way that you do it is that you start them young. Uh, and that uh, he claims that he didn't want to be that, but they made him that, and so that he just wanted to go on to um, higher party school and become a professor. And they would say, well, you can be a professor anytime. Right now we need you doing this. But, um, but, so, so, but I think at some point, because you see him, uh, he, he does climb higher. He seems to relish the authority that he has that I'm, I'm just speculating here, but he, I'm thinking he came to the realization at some point that the Soviets aren't going anywhere. Uh, and so, and, and I think he really began to have two driving motives. And one is to preserve the Latvian language and that to preserve the, the, the Latvian sort of culture and ethnic makeup. And he was afraid that was being eradicated by the influx of non-Latvians into Latvian language policies and the rest. And that only by Latvia actively sort of participating in the process would they get a seat at the table and be, be able to control events. And so that really, for better or for worse, 
uh, became his MO uh, as to how he was going to, to, to carry out these goals is by participating within the, the party. And so in that way, uh, he saw collaboration, I think, as advantageous. And a funny thing is he didn't actually give up his party card until or is taken from him 1972. That's 13 years after he was purged from the the, the, the Latvian party. And so, wow. Yeah. So he still saw use. Yes, obviously. Um, let's step back a minute from uh, the what's happening specifically in Latvia and look at the role of Latvia as, as a republic in um, Soviet politics more broadly. And so after the death of Stalin uh, in 1953, there were power struggles. And you argue that uh, Lavrenti Beria hoped to seize power uh, by using the republics, by building a power base in the republics for himself. And so he was proposing some radical reforms that would have affected Latvia as well as other republics. So what were these reforms and why in the end did they not provide a sufficient power base for Beria, who we know um, was then assassinated by his colleagues. Yeah. Uh, and he's a fascinating character, too. Uh, the Amy Knight book on him has all sorts of fascinating insights on him. I mean, he's, in a sense, um, possibly the most radical reformer, at least potential radical reformer up to the time of, of Gorbachev. Uh, he's really the one that uh, brings the doctor's plot to an end. He's, he begins the process of returning prisoners from the, uh, from, from the camps. Um, uh, he wants to, to jumpstart uh, relations with Yugoslavia. Uh, and eventually he's going to um, be accused of, of colluding with the West to give back East uh, East Germany to to West Germany in return for a piece of the Marshall Plan, so something of a uh, of a pragmatist as as well. But if you think about it, his uh, gambit was um, a reasonable one. That if you think about what the Soviet Union was comprised of, uh, there's a huge number of minority groups. Uh, and and Beria was uh, speaking their their language, and so one of the things that he uh, proposed is that um, that uh, that business should be conducted in the local language. Uh, that those people that don't know the local language, this was something of a litmus test, uh, are to be removed. Uh, that you remove the non. Uh, um, um, local communists from uh, the position of um, second secretary, which was which was done in 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 Latvia, um, and that there should be a vigorous promotion of of local cadres into the uh, into the party. And on one of my interviews with Bear Claus, I swear it took me about two hours <laughs> to get this out of him. But I wanted to know his thoughts on, on Beria and what it was that he was proposing. Uh, and at the very end, he sort of just became tired and said, yes, what he was proposing, we were in favor of. So, yes, we were in favor of Beria. And so he did have this kind of local support uh, with, these, uh, with these party leaders. 
Um, and one of the interesting things that I noticed immediately in my archival work is that everything up to this point uh, was in Russian, uh, before and after. But when I went to this particular plenum, it was in Latvian, and I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. Uh, but in July, after the arrest of Beria, uh, it was right back to being in, uh, in, in Russian again. And so uh, you could see how the politics were, were playing out. But you asked, you know, why the failure? Um, and this is what I wonder, is that were these uh, local party officials a sufficient base for what Beria wanted to do? And I think this is a theme that comes up time and again. We'll see this with the next purge in 1957, is that the locals will always take their cues from Moscow. And so even when you look at Vilas Krumich, and he sort of brags about how deftly he walked sort of both the sort of pro-Beria side, anti-Beria side during that dangerous June days, um, and even if you go back to the stenogram, you see that um, Krumich is very much couching his his words in terms of being in favor or against Beria. So he didn't just get Beria didn't get automatic support. Um, so I think then the real reason for the the, the failure is that. Um, Khrushchev was better than Beria at the, 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 the games that happened. Uh, he had the backing of the military. And this is another theme I think that we're going to see time and again, that the military was deeply resentful of the Stalin era and the purges because the military had suffered so much itself under these purges. And so time and again, Zhukov is going to sort of back Khrushchev even though we might not first see the commonality. The one common thread is that he was the most likely to be sort of uh, anti-MVD uh, or anti-Stalin. And so, mm -hmm. so I, and then, of course, uh, this is another common thread, uh, that um, the uprisings in eastern Germany could, I think, at least be attributed in part to Beria's reforms because he was coming down on the East Germans for being too Stalinist. Uh, this was understood by the population. And as uh, Tocqueville once said, the most dangerous time is when a country tries to reform itself, and these things begin to get away from you, as they saw in, in June of 1953. And, so, and, and I don't think that lesson of East Germany was lost on anybody, and this stuff real, this really stuck with people like uh, Khrushchev as well, and this, again, factors into, into Latvia later on. Mm -hmm. So what impact did the rise of Nikita Khrushchev have on Latvia? If you were to say between uh, Stalin... Uh, and, and after a big change, if you're to say between Beria and Khrushchev, actually not much of a change. And so the thing is, is that they arrest Beria, they denounce him, but they keep everything <laughs> and they continue on. Uh, and so, uh, and so, um, 
and and I think Khrushchev is going to to borrow, uh, take much of Beria's uh, platform and, and and use it wholesale, um, and so uh, and so. One of the things that Khrushchev, I think, sees though is that uh, the Soviet Union had become very stale. And that uh, the solution to this was that it needed an infusion of energy and dynamism. And if you look, think back to my sort of old descriptions of the three different groups, and we think about the Russophiles, they're sort of the old guard. They're not that interested in doing much of anything. But then you've got this group of Latvian national communists, and they're the young ones. They're the energetic ones. They're the ones full of of dynamism. And so, in a sense, it shouldn't be that surprising to us that Khrushchev would see a natural ally in the the national communists. And so... um, Khrushchev was really a good thing for for them, and their star is 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 going to 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 rise as a result of this. And that if you take a look at something like the secret speech and you put it into that local con, uh, context, what in a sense Khrushchev is doing is he's inviting people like um, bear claws to the secret speech, and in that whole time he's providing him with all this ammunition that he can go back and use against potential opponents like people like Pelsha. And poor Pelsha, every time one of these things comes up, he's there. He's a nervous person to begin with, but he's quaking in his boots in 1953. He's quaking in his boots in 1956. He's quaking in his boots in 1957. Uh, it's it's a wonder he didn't have a heart attack. So... <laughs> so- we have the national, uh, the Latvian national communists. Kind of, their star is rising, but they weren't without um, opponents, even within the Latvian SSR. And you refer to 1952 to 1957 as a period of culture wars, and that there was a conflict between these Latvian national communists and a group that called themselves the Young Latvians. So, who are these Young Latvians, and and what was this culture war about? And I should correct that just a little bit. These okay. young Latvians, they are a, um, a 19th century, what wow. we might call bourgeois revolutionary group. And so how this argument would go with these young nationalists, it was really between um, the Pelsha camp, these Marxist internationalists, and, uh, and the, the Latvian national communists. Okay. And so... Um, and, and it's funny, when you look at these culture wars, they're very important. Uh, first off, you get sort of echoes of what's happening in Moscow reverberating in the, uh, in the local republics. So it's not an accident that there is an issue in 1952 because that's coming on the heels of the 19th Congress in, in Moscow. Uh, and it's not an accident, 1957, because uh, this is just after the anti-party purges in, uh, in Moscow as well. And so everything is sort of connected with the other. But culture is vital. And, and, and you'll notice that the people that are going to prevail, uh, Mikhail Suslov at the all-union level and Arvids Pelsha at the, uh, at the republic level, um, 
They both come from Agit Prop. Uh, they are in charge of cultural purity and maintaining that, uh, that line. And that there would be these periodic flare-ups then uh, between these two basic lines. And they would use labels that are still used all the way up to the present time. Bourgeois nationalists. Uh, now, bourgeois, nobody's going to call anybody a bourgeois nationalist because nobody today would be insulted by the term. But they will use the term bourgeois nationalists in quotation marks. And if you're ever sort of wondering, is this author coming at it with a certain angle, look for that term bourgeois nationalists in quotation marks. But then you'll notice the term Russian chauvinist, which is a term very much used today, that never gets the quotation marks. So it's as if one is a real term, one is sort of a label. But I would argue that they're both labels, that they would be both periodically used by, say, the Beria camp at the 19th Congress to tar uh, the Russians by calling them Russian chauvinists, and when the shoe was on the other foot, that the Russians would label then the uh, uh, those that are in favor of minority rights bourgeois nationalists, and both are sort of negative in their uh, in their terms. Um, but um, but it's also a litmus test uh, because it gets at um, what do you think about the Soviet Union? Uh, how do you how do you see it charting its course going forward? Um, and with uh, with the Marxist internationalists, they would see culture as something that was very. You've got to be careful with it because it's like dynamite, and if you're not careful with it and it gets into the wrong hands, uh, the thing could blow up. And if it blows up, the culture blows up the Soviet Union's not going to be far behind. And I think that was a very real fear. Um, and, that, uh, and that they would sort of hold and disregard anybody that was overly reckless with that. And that it should be sort of only in the hands of the leadership because only they would be very careful with it. Um, and it's not something that you tamper with. What Marx said is what Marx said, and you shouldn't be deviating from it. But then you have um, sort of the bourgeois nationalist side of that. They're much more democratic and popular. So they see this whole thing as, again, if we want to really see communism take off, and they're true communists, it has to become popular with the people. So they're very democratic in this sense, in that this should belong to the people and don't strip from them so many of their favorite cultural icons. Give them something to believe in. So where these young nationalists would come into this is that, uh, according to Marx, you go through a feudal stage, then you go through the bourgeois industrial phase, and then finally you go into socialism and communism. And that these young national uh, Latvians were revolutionary in that they were instrumental in throwing off the feudal shackles of, of Tsarist Russia and promoting Latvian nationalism. And that Marx wouldn't necessarily see that as a bad thing. He wouldn't see that as the best thing, 
but he would definitely see it as higher than the feudalism that they had overthrown. And isn't their revolutionary tradition worthy of celebration as, as well? But this then has huge implications as well. Because if Pelsha is Agitprop secretary, meaning he's in charge of propaganda convincing this mass of Latvians to come to the true faith communism, as long as they're not doing that, he's in a precarious position because they can always then argue what you've done up to this point, Pelsha, hasn't worked. The Latvians aren't going for it. We have to try something new. We have to try this communism with the human face. And so he was in a very precarious position with, with this issue of culture. Mm-hmm. And you um, have already talked about the uh, policies that focused on the, um, the titular nationality of the republics mm-hmm. under Beria and that those stayed in place in Soviet Latvia. And perhaps this explains why Latvians who were a minority in the Latvian Communist Party held a disproportionately large number of seats in the Latvian Communist Party Bureau by 1959. And these kind of two years or two or three years, 57, 58, 59, where they're really in power, um, had some pretty dramatic um, occurrences. And and I thought it was... um, uh, striking that you uh, called the events of the first plenum that followed the 15th Latvian Communist Party Congress in January 1958 as nothing short of astounding. So tell us what happened. <laughs> well, um, kind of as we talked about before, how this structure would work is that you, not in all cases, but in the Latvian case, you had the patsy at the top. The first secretary was always from the the, the local party. Um, and so that was Janis Kalimberzinj. And then you files that were always in there as the second secretary. And uh, and they would sort of periodically come and, and go. And that, uh, and that they were the eyes on, on the Republic so that Moscow could keep, a, a keep check on things. Um, and it's really at this um, Congress and then, the, uh, and then the Central Committee plenum that followed this uh, that, that things were sort of turned on their head. And so long story short is that um, for the first real time, there's a slight exception, 1953, but for the first meaningful time, a Latvian had taken the role of second secretary. So now all of a sudden, Moscow doesn't have its eyes in the republic. And, uh, and, and, and we have to sort of understand the reason why that is. Um, and one of the things that we see with the Latvian National Communists is that they're really sort of pushing for um, maybe some type of party democracy, that they want their voices heard. And the norm in, in, in a usual meeting is that you do these things, it's all pro forma, and ideally how this is done is that there's a unanimous vote in favor of And in sort of rare occasions, like this 1952 meeting, and then here in 1958, there would be these uh, dissenting votes, 
where the person didn't get the unanimous vote. And maybe there are only 20 votes on dissenting, but that's a very real statement. That's what happened in 1958. And it was against against the second secretary, who was a a non-Latvian, and then it was against Arvids Pelsha. So another shot over the bow of, of Pelsha. And so they both were elected into the Central Committee, even despite these opposition votes. But when we get to the Central Committee meeting, somebody raises the point, since there were so many opposition votes to you, Second Secretary, um, wouldn't it be good if you maybe didn't run for Second Secretary, if you stepped aside? And in fact, I propose somebody different. I propose Bear Claws. And then there was just sort of this buzz. And you see it recorded in the stenogram as well, too. And the poor Colin Berzinch, the first secretary, doesn't quite know what to do because he's never been confronted with this before. He's, is this right? Is this correct? Uh, can we take a recount? Doing everything imaginable to try to defer this. And finally, uh, he says, okay. We can't decide this matter right now. We're going to come back to it. And Bear Claws just recounts how ecstatic they were, that they were just sort of walking the streets after that meeting, just sort of wondering what to do next. And I think the first thing that everybody understood was that Bear Claws would not be acceptable to Moscow because he had already proven himself pretty radical in places like Riga. Um but then there's Krumich, this younger person, uh, who's always had a much more moderate stance. And so they proposed him and they ran it past Khrushchev. And Khrushchev said, if that's who they want, then maybe that's who they should have. And uh, and that is that is a truly amazing step forward because something like that really hadn't happened in that way. Uh, in, in Latvian history, if, if not elsewhere. And so that was pivotal. And at that point, then the Latvian National Communists had really sort of reached their critical mass, and now they could begin to implement their program. Mm-hmm. And not surprisingly, since uh, they have the name Nationalist Communists, um, <laughs> language use in the, uh, in the Latvian uh, Soviet Socialist Republic and also the influx of Russian speakers primarily um, uh, from other parts of the Soviet Union that uh, coming into the um, Republic and changing the demographics were two key issues. And I suspect that these are chapters where some people might think your um, stances are uh, controversial or uh, so I'd like to hear first, we'll talk about the Latvian language use. And um, you talk about a particular incident in the town of Daugavpils. So what yeah. happened there and how was this um, uh, the, a telling uh, incident in thinking about language use and language laws and language policies in this uh, Latvia? Yeah, well, and in fact, I said critical mass had only been reached in 1958, but I take that back. Critical mass had really been reached in 1956, two years earlier. And they began to pass language laws that if you are a party official um, uh, or or you hold some type of sort of governmental position, um, you have two years to learn the local language. 
And so what was happening is that those two years were now coming due as we get into 1958. And here's the thing about Daugavpils. It's the uh, number two city in Latvia. It's 13 percent Latvian, 87 percent non-Latvian. It, in a sense, is, is the Latvian nightmare come to pass where here is a Latvian city, which is now predominantly Russian-speaking, predominantly ethnic Russian. And, uh, and what they wanted to do, they didn't want to deport or expel the entire city of Daugavpils, but there was this person named uh, Pavel Tcherkovsky. He was Latgalian. Uh, and, uh, and I think I, he was really what the national communist ideal was, is that he's somebody that's not purely ethnically Latvian, but he's fluent in Latvian, has a healthy appreciation of the Latvian culture, and I think they really pegged this person as the first city, uh, uh, first secretary for Daugavpils. And they, they intended, in my opinion, to use uh, the language issue as a pretext for going in and basically cleaning house of all of the Russophiles that were occupying uh, the leading positions within the Daugavpils uh, um, Gorkum. And that, uh, and that with that purge, they would remove a major center of opposition and that they would begin a process of, in a sense, Latvianization, where then we would require that people learn Latvian language for real in the schools, uh, that uh, Latvian culture and the arts are celebrated in their ethnographic museums and their plays and elsewhere, and that eventually they would assimilate into the, 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 the larger uh, republic. Um, uh, culturally. And so, unfortunately for the um, Bear Claws faction, though, uh, he was hoping for a full-on purge. Um, instead, uh, they just got a slight uh, tongue lashing from the first secretary, and, uh, and Bear Claws was bitterly disappointed that more didn't come of that. And I suspect, uh, having given more time, uh, he probably would have revisited that and and purged those people from the uh, from the party. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, you talk about this kind of, two events happening at the same time or two kind of processes: the industrialization in the Latvian Soviet Socialist Republic, and also the influx of primarily ethnic speaking ethnic Russians, um, but also people from other parts of uh, the Soviet Union, and the uh, demographic change that occurred. And of course, this is something that we continue to see in in present-day Latvia. Um, What, in your view, is the relationship between these two processes, the industrialization and the the demographic change? Uh, And and what I can say is that both happened, uh, both are for real, uh, and for sure, one influenced the other. And so we see that industrialization increased dramatically. Um, we see that that then created a labor shortage, 
which then necessitated the influx of, of non-Latvians into the Republic. But the question then becomes, why? And, uh, and this is where then I think it, it becomes somewhat controversial. Um, and so the usual argument is that um, Russia, as it's done in the past, and I think that this is true, has attempted to stamp out, uh, when possible, um, national identity and Russify. I think that's a, a true thing that's happened. Um, Germany, too, had a colonization uh, policy, sort of eliminate and repopulate with uh, native uh, Germans. Uh, and so these things uh, I'm definitely not discounting. But I, I feel like every sort of incident uh, deserves its own assessment. And just because it's happened before or elsewhere doesn't mean that that's what's happening here. Um, and so and, and, and this is where I take some issue with uh, some of the historiography that's out there. Um, and in particular, um, document collections, I think, are the most insidious. There are lies, damn lies, and document collections because they have the, uh, they have the veneer of you're going to the truth. And, and if you don't believe me, just take a look at the documents and there it'll reveal what, uh, what, what you see, what's the truth. And that it also then says in this, uh, this document collection, uh, policy of occupation, uh, uh, great power occupation, that uh, we want to refrain from uh, all but the most uh, uh, basic facts to give you some, some context. Um, but one of the things that you find in the document collection is that it shows how industrialization did, in fact, increase since 1945. It does show the changing proportions in demographics, uh, uh, not favoring the Latvians, uh, and these things are all true. But then it takes that final step of inferring that if this is so and that is so, this must be the reason why, because it was the policy of, of Moscow to create this, this labor shortage for the purpose of creating this uh, influx of non-Latvians and assimilation. Uh, and there's no such document then that, uh, that, that supports that, uh, that claim. Uh, and the other place that this really comes from, this idea of using um, industrialization to create a demographic imbalance, comes from Bear Claus himself and his famous 1972 protest letter, where he sort of, it's as if this letter is kind of spirited out from behind the Iron Curtain, smuggled out to the West so that they could get a sense of what the truth was going on behind the Iron Curtain. But one of the things that's important to understand is that Bear Claus isn't a historian. His job in that sense was not a quest for the unbiased truth. He was trying to get the best deal that he could for Latvia, which was he was trying to preserve uh, the language and ethnic makeup of Latvia. He didn't think the Soviet Union was ever going to vanish, so he begins. So he he creates these charges of industrialization. 
uh, and again, sort of uses the same uh, statistical material, but then sort of draws in, in between the lines and, and explains the reason why. But again, nothing to, to, to actually back it up. So we have to be careful of that. And if we, we just sort of take a look at the statistics, we begin to see a different picture sort of emerging. So the first thing is we can't trace our statistics back to just 1939. We have to look at the totality of what was happening under Tsarist Russia, under independent Latvia, under the Soviet Union. And if you take this broader view, um, you begin to see a different pattern emerging. And what that tends to be is that when Latvia was attached to a larger empire, it tended to be very urban and industrial in its nature. And a lot of this was coming from the, 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 the German entrepreneurs in Riga and elsewhere for profit motive rather than any nefarious reasons. And this was done 100 years before the Soviet Union. And so a lot of the, the industrial complexes that Bear Claws even cites in his protest letter predate the Soviet Union, go back to Tsarist Russia. But then what you begin to notice is that... Um, when Latvia is independent, it in a sense is cut off from that larger uh, empire. It loses that larger market. So it begins to turn inward into more agricultural production. And this then is seen as the, the Latvian ideal. But it's the Latvian ideal for perhaps an independent Latvia that doesn't have a larger market, not necessarily when it's attached to a larger empire, either Russian or Soviet. And so then what happens is that when it's attached to the Soviet Union, the old pattern returns once again. And it becomes very natural for uh, Riga to become a hub of industrialization. Now, we look at demographic shortages, and you don't need to concoct a demographic shortage within Latvia after the First World War. It already existed. So as I said before, the First World War was a demographic catastrophe for Latvia, where its population plummets from 2.5 million to 1.8 million. Um, and then there's going to, to be all of the events of the First World War. So one of the things I do in my book is I create a correlation uh, between um, Jewish populations and, 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 and Jews lost during the Holocaust versus influx of non-Latvians into those communities. And there's almost a perfect correlation between loss of that Jewish population being repopulated then not with Latvians, but with non-Latvians. And perhaps one of the easiest reasons as to explain why it's not being repopulated with Latvians is because they had one of the lowest birth rates in the, uh, in the entire Soviet Union. And so they had a minimal popula small population growth to, uh, to begin with. And so it could be, and I can't say that uh, um, forest assimilation wasn't the reasoning behind uh, industrialization. But all I would say is we don't have that evidence, and there's any number of other explanations that could uh, that could explain that. So, so here we are in 1959. The Latvian National Communists are 
in power and uh, Khrushchev comes to visit Riga and he does this on a fairly regular basis. Mm -hmm. You said he likes to vacation at the seaside resort of Yermila. Having been there, I can say a good choice <laughs> for a vacation. Um, but his visit in June 1959 uh, is particularly momentous um, because it really sets into motion the um, events that lead to the purge of the Latvian National Communists. So what happened uh, during this visit and, um, and how did it lead to the fall of the Latvian National Communists? And I, I thought it's particularly interesting that you, um, uh, again, uh, looking at these nuances, say that we can't see this as just, you know, monolithic Moscow going after the um, the localism of the Latvian National Communists, but that there's a lot of forces at play both in Moscow and in Latvia during this time. Uh, that's right. Um, and I should say, too, that for most of my time uh, researching in Latvia, um, I was thinking along the same lines as everybody else was as to what happened. To me, it was pretty clear, cut and dry, that um, there was blatant nationalism. Uh, the localism had gone too far. Um, Khrushchev came to sound out the party, uh, found that there was nationalism there, and uh proceeded to instigate the uh, the purge. And this has always been uh, the contention of um, the Latvian emigres that this is how it happened. It is really Khrushchev behind it. Uh, Bear Claus has always uh, believed that it was Khrushchev uh, that was behind the, uh, the, the, the purge. Um, and it wasn't until uh, pretty late in my research that I was uh, that I came across the uh, um, memoirs of uh, Villas Krumenge, and as I was reading this, um, he said that you know it wasn't in fact Khrushchev that carried out this purge, uh, but it was done against his express wish, as carried out more along the lines of, of Pelsha. And I, I wasn't quite sure that I was reading that right. So I took it to my host mother to make sure that I was understanding what I was uh, uh, reading. And she had confirmed this. And I thought, I, and he goes on to say, uh, when the archives uh, um, are, are made open, uh, there'll be a real story to tell. And so I thought to myself, well, here I am, 2005, the archives are open now. I'd like to see that story. Uh, and so I, I go to it. Uh, and as Khrushchev had said, um, or as Krumen had said, he was, uh, Khrushchev was sort of initially thinking in terms of, of doing something about the Latvian National Communists, but then thought uh, otherwise of it. And then about a week and a half later, uh, the purge happens nonetheless. And so it really sets you to thinking then um, as, as to how is it that something like this could happen? And here I think we begin to see echoes of what's going to happen with Bear Claws to what's going to happen with Khrushchev. These things are somewhat linked. And the first thing that I, I really didn't quite mention is that uh, Pelsha 
is, in fact, a brother-in-law to Mikhail Suslov. Uh, Mikhail Suslov is going to be the person that really orchestrates Khrushchev's downfall four years later in 1964. And that you can see that the Latvian star always rose under Khrushchev. Uh, but and, 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 and Pelsha had been stymied for all these years, stuck in this position of third secretary, Agitprop secretary. Uh, and the moment then that uh, the national communists are purged, Pelsha's star is going to, to rise. Suslov's star will continue to rise. And that, uh, and that in a sense, Khrushchev's uh, going to be the, the, the next to fall. So there's a there's a real correlation there. But to try to explain it, and we can't know any of this for sure, but my best guess is that with Bearclaws, he was a blatant nationalist. Uh, he, as uh, first secretary of Riga Gorkom, sought, in his own words, to stop the migration of non-Latvians into Riga for the express purpose of maintaining that sort of um, ethnic composition. And that would be seen even by the most liberal Marxist as being nationalistic. Uh, And then with the language, uh, he made no bones about the fact that he wanted, it required that people, if you're working in Latvia, have to to speak uh, Latvian. Um, And that that, uh, he also had no qualms about saying how low he thought many of these uh, uh, non-Latvians were. Uh, And so... Oftentimes, there's this question, was uh, Bearclaw's, was he accused of bourgeois nationalism? Again, with the quotation marks, and I would take those quotes off, and I would call him a nationalist, for sure. Uh, and that the record is, is there. Um, but then Khrushchev comes, and he's confronted uh, by everybody's account, including Bearclaw's. It was a very good visit. And then Khrushchev was enjoying himself for most of the days that he was there. Nothing was amiss. Um, And that it was only in this last night that the military in particular pulled aside Khrushchev. And the national communists and and the military have never gotten along very well. Um, Mostly because the military are what we might call these Russophiles. They're transient here one day, gone the next. And that lots of these officers saw uh, Yermila as a much higher standard of living, so a place that you'd want to retire in, and so as being inundated with all these Russian officers, and so a threat, again, to the ethnic makeup of, of Latvia. So they've never gotten along. Um, and so they pulled him aside and sort of said, there's this problem going on. And what's amazing is they had been complaining about bear claws for years, and, 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 and to me, what was so interesting was not the fact that Bear Claus was purged. My thinking is, why wasn't he purged earlier? So my thought is, how did he last for so long? 
But you get all of these sort of desperate attempts, you know, just sort of make this all go away and Bear Claws wouldn't. And uh, he, he was very uh, bullheaded about this. And why I think Khrushchev was so indulgent was revealed in, in this Central Committee uh, uh, meeting that came after this dramatic showdown in Riga. Um, and he said that, uh, that the troublemakers will turn out uh, and that uh, the entire world will see uh, that there's not this brotherly unity that we've been talking about for, for so many years, that this would really be a blotch on the uh, image of, of the Soviet Union. And he was terrified of a nationalist uprising, I think. Uh, and so, so Khrushchev had, in, in this encounter in Riga, had this sort of dramatic showdown with Bear Claws, and he sort of comes with this big finger wagging, asking, where's Bear Claws? And Bear Claws says, here I am. And he says, are you a, a good man? Are you an honest man or a uh, enemy? If you're a uh, enemy, we'll find out and we'll wipe you off the face of the earth. Uh, and with that, he sort of storms off on the plane. And that's everybody's last impression of the interaction between Bear Claws and, uh, and uh, Khrushchev. And they're not privy to all of these conversations that Khrushchev has uh, later on with Krumich and the Central Committee and the rest. And so with that, I would argue that Pelsha, I think, with the quiet support of Suslov in Moscow, says it's time to clean this up. Now is the time to strike because there's been this very public and vocal confrontation between Bear Claws and Khrushchev. And that in a sense, Khrushchev is the one in the wrong for, for trying to protect this person. Uh, and so just called Bear Claws out on what he is, lay out the crimes as they were, and that uh, no objective Marxist could say he's anything but a bourgeois nationalist and then just let the chips fall where they may. And that's how it happened. And it's an interesting thing with the archives is one of the ways that I sort of was able to track what Bear Claws was doing was that I would just simply follow Pelsha's pencil. He would always sign into the archives when I could see it dated back in June of 1959 with this red pencil. And then he would go and he would sort of underline or highlight things that he saw as criminal activity. And I would just go through and I would follow Pelsha's red pencil and go right to what the issues were. And they were true. <laughs> and so that's, that's how it happened. Wow, that's a great uh, archival story. That's one of my favorite things about these interviews is that you hear, you get to hear some of the archival stories up from the um, research part and not just the, to see the finished book. Yeah. Um, and so within two years, um, 2000 um, Latvian uh, communists are, are purged as nationalists, and um, it's a it's a huge event in the um, in the Soviet Union and and uh, of course in, in Latvia. How is that looked at today um, in terms of Latvian um, perspectives on the Soviet experience? I mean, how is Berklov's viewed today? How is how are these Latvian national communists viewed today? Yeah, um, you know, uh, people of my generation 
wouldn't really know or care about communist bear claws. <laughs> mm-hmm. And bear claws had a whole second career. And so that's really how they know bear claws is as this sort of uh, freedom fighter in the 1980s. And to them, um, uh, 1950s is is really ancient history. And there's almost this sort of disinterest in all things Soviet. They're mm-hmm. much more forward-looking rather than, than backward-looking. But, um, but you see, I think during the 1980s, there was this whole spat of memoirs sort of done as a serial format in the various presses. Uh, and, and everybody was doing that in Latvia. And that's, that's a very interesting thing about this study as well, because if you go elsewhere, a lot of times the leadership was older, and so they would die off in the 1960s or 70s. And so if they left any kind of memorial account, it would be in this sort of rigid Soviet style that doesn't tell you anything. But by the time you get to Gorbachev's era – then they can really begin to have honest conversations, which, you know, allows the research to be so much uh, richer. But a lot of this stuff is sort of trying to justify past deeds. And they were always pushing me higher behind my back, despite my protests and the rest. And I think at some level, the, um, the Latvians understand that and they see them as being somewhat complicit. And they ask the question of, you know, where were you during the, uh, during the collectivization and purges of 1948? And they're both Krumich and, Co- and Bear Claus are head of the Komsomol fully engaged in, in helping to round up these people. And you can try to hide it, but everybody knows that it happens. As uh, um, Anna Akhmanova once said, there are two Russias, those that were sent to the camp and those that sent them to the camp. And I think that memory is always very fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if Bear Claus um, has redeemed himself more so than the crewmages and pinksesses of the uh, the world in the fact that he sort of had enough of the whole system and actively moved to to overthrow it. And so and that's an interesting story, too. Yeah. Um, just one last question about the book. Um, what do you think this study about the Latvian National Communist tells us about political legitimacy um, yeah. in the in a Soviet Republic, you know, in Soviet Union broadly, or just any uh, thoughts on political legitimacy? And, you know, we can can really understand 1959 in a couple of different ways. That I said that um, if Bear Claus, he seemed to win all of the battles leading up to 1959, but then he lost the war with his purge in, in 1959. But in a larger sense... Perhaps 1959 wasn't the war, but it was just another battle. And if you look at the war as being the collapse of the Soviet Union, then he has his revenge. And the way that he does this, it's all through legitimacy or delegitimizing the power. And he he understood as a national communist, at its base – 
the only way that this thing is going to work is that if you have mass popular support. And I think there was a long time that he believed that he could get that if only communism was done in the proper way. But at some point, and this really comes after the protest letter in 1972, where he sort of called out, and I think removed from the party, that he truly loses his faith in communism, turns against the party, and no longer sees working within the Communist Party as a viable way of uh, dealing with the situation, that you have to work outside the system. And that uh, the way that you do that is twofold, that you delegitimize the occupation. And he had never sort of talked about the occupation as a national communist, never called it illegal, never even talked about the occupation in his protest letter. It's just what the Soviets are doing is wrong and it should be done better. But the fact that the Soviets are here, that was never a problem in the, uh, in the protest letter. The greatest crime was totally ignored. Um, but so after that, uh, he really moves to um, uphold the Constitution and this was a common thread that you find with bear claws going all the way back to the 1940s, that he was sort of naive in the sense that everybody in the main Soviet Union understood the Constitution to be a scrap of paper and take it with a grain of salt. And bear claws never got that memo. And he thought that the Constitution was something that is for real, that it's living. He knew that Constitution inside and out. And if ever there was a question that came up, he would always refer them to the Constitution. And so there's, of course, that one part in the Constitution as well, that if a republic chooses at some point to remove itself from the Soviet Union, that it has that right to do that. And so, to me, it's not an accident that Bear Claus, when he takes that tremendous energy that he has, and now he channels it against the Soviet Union as a whole, woe to the Soviet Union, and he becomes uh, head of the uh, Latvian National Independence Movement, which is the most radical wing of the Popular Front, and they were then the first to call for the outright separation from the Soviet Union, and there is nothing more quintessential bear claws than, than that push. And at the end of the day, uh, he had his revenge. Mm-hmm. Well, this is uh, quite a story that you've told in this book, and I think has, um, as we've drawn out in this conversation, a lot of implications for understanding the Soviet Union um, after the death of Stalin. So I appreciate that you took the time to talk to us about it. And um, I always learn as much from the interviews as I do from reading the books. Uh, But I'm curious to know what you're working on now. Uh Uh-huh. Well, um, you know, I've never considered myself a Latvian historian. I consider myself a Soviet historian of the republics who is particularly interested in this period of 1959 and the national question. And so 
uh, as part of my contention is that I said that there was a real link between Bearclaw's and Crucius' fate and Pelsha's fate and Susla's fate, which then sort of begs the question, is Latvia just one sort of republic in which this might have been happening and is this part of a larger process? And if we look at Suslov, too, he's kind of an interesting fellow because he is a uh, Marxist internationalist like Pelsha. But one of the things that really defines um, Suslov is this idea of um, collective leadership. And he would have seen Khrushchev as an uh, arrogant, reckless reformer similar to the way that, uh, that Bearclaus was an arrogant, reckless reformer, also somewhat autocratic. And this is difficult to understand with this concept of being so much in favor of the democracy. But if democracy is understood as collective leadership of, of, of the party, um, what Bearclaus was doing is sort of going over the heads of the party to the people as a whole, and then, in a sense, using that legitimacy that he would get from them to rule within the party very autocratically. And so we could say the same thing about Khrushchev as well, in that he was something of an autocrat. So one of the first things that what Suslov was striving for is more of this idea of collective leadership. And there's a democratic approach to how we choose leaders and how we retain leaders. And so it wasn't up to Suslov to just somehow through some behind-the-scenes cloak-and-dagger maneuver remove Khrushchev. It has to be done democratically. In order to do that, you have to have a critical mass within the Central Committee in order to make that happen. And Suslov, like Pelsha, is also a very patient person. And so he the purge doesn't have to happen in 1959. You can begin to then visit other places like Azerbaijan, like Moldavia, elsewhere, to see where else is this happening and who are various other sort of national communists or Khrushchev protégés that we can knock off until we begin to, to, to stack uh, the seats with our people so that we can get the critical mass to democratically remove Khrushchev, which is what happened in 1964. So where I am, and I have a, a few other sort of fellow travelers with me, we're sort of striking out across the Soviet Union, uh, um, checking in the archives uh, uh, at the same places, same times, to see how each of these local parties are responding uh, and what ultimately happens to their leadership to see if we can establish a pattern uh, union-wide. So where I was uh, last um, summer was in, uh, in the archives in Kiev, uh, and I'm planning to go back this summer and perhaps also to Moldova because, um, again, we're going right to the heart of Khrushchev there, and there's many interesting characters and events to explore there as well, too. So we keep peeling back the onion. Well, I find Suslava a fascinating character as well, so I am looking forward to this 
book coming out um, in a few years, and hopefully we can talk again at that point. But thank you very much again for today, and uh, I appreciated the opportunity to talk to you about your book. And um, we look forward, uh, listeners, to another uh, podcast uh, next month. And in the meantime, um, you can learn a lot more about the Latvian Communist Party and, and the Soviet politics in 1959 by reading Bear Slayers. Thank you, William. Thank you.